welcome. Thanks, Matty. As Matty said, my name's Paul. I'm one of the pastors here at King's, and uh, it'd be my privilege, it's my privilege this evening to uh, be speaking to you. I'm going to speak uh, for about half an hour. Um, we're going to be looking at the Bible. We're going to be looking at what it says. We're going to continue our Acts series, our Acts of Courage series. If you haven't yet put an act of courage on the board, why not do it tonight? Something that God's prompted you to do over the last week or the last couple of weeks that you wouldn't have done if he hadn't prompted you, but you've stepped outside your comfort zone and you've gone for it. If you're not quite certain what sort of things can go up there, why don't you have a look, have a read of the post-it notes up there, see what other people have been doing and... Uh, See if you can better it. See if God's prompted you to do something um, that no one else has yet. I want to just encourage you with that encounter week. Those different subjects that we're going to be looking at. What was it? Fear, rejection, control, self-reliance, unbelief. We're looking at material that I've gone through a couple of times personally. And to be quite honest, if I'm... You know, just between us, I had them all. I, I, as I was going through the material, realized actually I had struggles in each of those different areas, some to a greater, some to a lesser extent. So I just want to say, really, even if, echoing what Maddie said, even if you think, no, I'm, I'm fine, I haven't got any of those five, I'd still encourage you to come along because it's amazing what the Holy Spirit reveals when you put yourself in a place to find out those things. And so I do think it will be a critical time for us as a church as we look to continue to work out what God is putting in. So I do encourage you to come along to that. This morning we're going to be looking at the whole subject of loving people and not things. We're going to look at the whole subject of loving people and not possessions And we're going to look at one of the passages in in the book of Acts that is probably one of the trickiest ones to get our heads around. It's the one that probably is most likely to offend us. But because it's in the Bible, I'm going to preach it. And in the end, you see, it's so really important that we don't define what should be in the Bible by what we personally like or dislike. What goes in the Bible is what God puts there. And God is King of Kings, he is the Lord of Lords, he's the creator of all things. So in the end, he's the one with the prerogative to say what goes in and what goes out. Ours as those that are created and shaped by him, what we need to do is look at it, look to understand it and do the best we can to put our lives under the authority of what is written there. Now you may not like what I just said, but that really isn't even my concern. My primary concern is just to communicate what Scripture says and invite the Holy Spirit to come and work in our lives. Amen? So if I haven't yet upset you, (laughs) praise God. Right. (laughs) So loving people and not things. When we accepted Jesus, so much in our lives changed. We were given new hearts. He poured his Holy Spirit into us, our destiny changed, maybe our hopes changed, he even possibly renewed our desires, but not everything changed. 
You might wonder why it is as you walk around in this life, there seems to be a whole load of carriages of baggage that we pull behind us. It's because not everything changed when we became Christians, although an awful lot did. And this passage we're going to look at, um, in a sense, is an example of actually the fact that we can be living in a setting of incredible blessing of God. We can be enjoying a whole load of favor at, at different levels. And yet we still need to work out the baggage that we carry around with us. And there is a danger for us as Christians that although we love Jesus very much, the next thing that comes in the pecking order isn't the people that God has put around us, but the possessions he's given to us as good gifts. And what Jesus has done in our lives is so radical and so wonderful. You know, it's to transform the very core of our being to set us free from the love of possessions so we might be men and women who pursue Jesus and radically love other people. And that's what this passage that we're going to look look at is all about. We're going to look at it under three headings, and we'll get on to that in a minute. But why don't I dive in and read the passage first? We're going to read Acts chapter 4, verse 32. The words are going to come up behind me, and we'll work our way through. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their, giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was no needy person among them, For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and he laid it at the apostles' feet. This, This is an incredible passage. It's an incredible passage of where it communicates about what it's like to be church, as described in the book of Acts. But we're going to move on now in chapter 5 to something that stands, as it were, in stark contrast to everything we've just read. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds, and brought only part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose, wrapped him up, and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who buried your husband are at the door, 
and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And when the young men came in, they found her dead and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. Lord, I just want to pray, please would you help me to uh, courageously communicate your word this evening. I pray, Lord, I wouldn't back away from anything difficult that needs to be said. But I pray I wouldn't take your word further either than it should go. I ask, please give me skill and wisdom in this. And I ask just, Holy Spirit, that you'll be working in every single heart in this place. Lord, I ask you that every heart and mind will leave enough space for you to work. I pray there won't be any here that just switch off because of what the passage has said. We ask that in your precious name, Lord Jesus. Amen. We're going to take this uh, whole section of scripture in three sections. We're going to start with the first few verses. And uh, the first few verses are the description of the early church, which is pretty incredible. I mean, it is a pretty incredible description of what church is like. Then there's a very brief couple of verse section on Barnabas, um, who was an illustration of what the church was doing at large. And then, in a sense, we finish up with a bit of a warning, and that's a warning of Ananias and Sapphira. And I just want to say at this point, God hasn't made a mistake putting it in the New Testament. You know, when they were indexing this, the Bible, they didn't put it in the wrong place. It shouldn't have gone in the Old Testament, where lots of people die. It is supposed to be here. So we, we need to try and understand why and look to apply it to our lives. So the first point I've got is the church, a place where people love each other. This passage is very similar to Acts chapter, 40, uh, uh, chapter, chapter 2, which John Gross spoke about a few weeks ago. And it's a description of church life that is powerful and is just as much an outworking of being filled with the Holy Spirit as signs, wonders and miracles. So this incredibly generous church is as much an outworking of being filled with the Holy Spirit as when we pray for sick people or we look for demonstrations of power. Amen? We read that they were of one heart and soul. I don't know, I reckon when Luke was writing this, he was trying to think, what phrase can I use just to communicate their love for each other and their unity? I want you to imagine that you're suddenly sharing your physical heart with the person next to you. You've only got one heart between the two of you. Imagine how interested you would be in what they ate. Imagine how interested you would be in what they did with their lives. Maybe how much exercise they got. How how interested you would be in how they care for your heart. The one you are sharing with them. It says they were of one heart. And mind. I just, just thought, wow. Do you know what I mean? You, you would suddenly be an awful lot more interested in the life of the person next to you, maybe, than you are. Now, actually, there are some married couples here. I'm hoping that's not true for you. But, but you know what I mean? Actually, there, there would have been a real unity and, and, and a concern. And then it's also, there are sorry, one heart and soul. I mean, the soul is, is, is the place where we think, it's where we feel, it's where we make decisions, it's the seat of our intellect. It's, the, it's, it's, it's where our emotions are. And it says one. So there was such a unity in, 
in, in even feeling what was going on in other people's lives crashed in to the church. How they thought there was great similarity. It wasn't they were just one big collective or anything like that, but, but there was this unity. And as Luke's trying to describe it, he says, look, they're of one heart and one mind. So one soul. There's a closeness to this. They're reliant on each other. They are committed to one another. And it's interesting when Luke is trying to illustrate their closeness of heart and soul, what he picks. He doesn't pick how they talk to each other. He doesn't talk about the standard of their small group life. He doesn't talk about the preaching on Sunday. What he chooses to talk about is possessions. When he's looking at the whole area of being one heart and soul, he picks on the whole subject of possessions and what the early church was doing with them. The church's heart towards possessions was completely countercultural. Rather than hoarding, or saving for a rainy day, or topping up their retirement pot. They shared and had everything in common. There was no needy person. Those with possessions, land and property, sold them to care for those in need. A powerful demonstration of one heart and soul. just want to make a little note here. They had private property. It wasn't that when they came to Christ, they had to put it all into some collective. They still had private property. They got to use it as they wanted. But they were so moved by the needs of other people that they were willing to get rid of their inheritance. Maybe something that had been passed down generation to generation to generation to relieve the immediate need of poverty seen around them. It is a powerful demonstration of being one heart and soul. I was trying to think of something that I can use just to illustrate that. And the only thing I could come close to, because my problem with preaching this is I just feel I'm a million miles away from it. Please hear, I don't, I'm not preaching this from a place of authority in putting, I, I just, to be honest, I was battling after preaching it this morning, thinking, I don't know how I can stand and do it again, because I just feel I'm a million miles from this. But it's in the Bible. When, when I thought of what it is to have everything in common, the only illustration I could come up with from my life was when I married Chloe. When I was a single guy, had a house, had a car, had a good job, had a salary, had money. Ah. Oh. Anyway, no more reminiscing. When I married Chloe, suddenly we got everything in common. Now, now, my feelings, I felt it, I wanted it, I wanted to share. But actually, regardless of whether I wanted to or not, we got everything in common. It's just how it worked. The house went joint names. Chloe went on my car insurance. I'd fill it up with petrol, she drove it. I earned the money, she... But we had everything in common. Suddenly, I wasn't just concerned about my needs and what I wanted. I cared about her. Suddenly, two 
became one. And I'm not saying that the church, it was like that across the board, but, but there's something of having everything in common, something of being of one heart and soul that, that, that is different to how everyone else in Jerusalem was living at that time. It was something incredibly attractive. It's a level of life that I'm struggling to find other illustrations for that I can say I've got. Now, I know some of you are much more qualified than me to speak on this. But can you see there was a real depth to life, and it's, it's an outworking of loving each other. It was empowered by the Holy Spirit. The, the other illustration, just to, just to linger here a moment, is... When I whack my hand with a hammer, which I do frequently because I'm not very good at DIY, the rest of my body joins in the song of pain. My mouth shouts it out. My eyes have tears in. My mind is wondering, can I make it to call 999 before I pass out? My feet run, my other hand gathers it close. And I say it with a smirk, but, but that's how our bodies work, isn't it? A pain in one part of the body, you, you can change everything that's happening. You, you know, because you've hurt a part of your body, everything goes. Every, life stops if you're a bloke. You know, you get man flu, that's it, life is over. It's, it's done. Until you've nursed the sniffles back to better. You know, it's, that's it, you're done. You're, you're off, off the scene. The fact that the cold hasn't affected your feet, your hands, your mind, any of that, it's just your nose is running a bit. The whole of life stopped. The Bible says that the church is like a body. That, that we're not just all individual parts bouncing around. God has molded us together. He wants us to be part of a body. Some of you are hands, some of you are feet, some of you are brains, some of you are eyes. You've all got a part to play. You look around, you think we're all really, really different. That's God's wisdom. He can bring things very, very different together in Christ. And although we don't have much in common at one level, because we love Jesus and we're following him, we've got everything in common. He, he brings us together. So when one part hurts, we all hurt. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honoured, all rejoice together. I I think, church, if I can say this, you, you, you are an incredible church. Okay, I'm a little biased, but the best church, I think, in the whole world. But we've got so far to go in this. Haven't we? It's there like a big provocation to us. I'm going to pray, then we're going to move on. Lord, I ask you, Lord, we want to, I think we want to, we want to grow in this, Lord. Lord, it says that they are of a one heart and soul. And then Luke writes they had everything in common as an illustration of this point. Oh, Lord, I pray would our unity grow deeper. I pray would our generosity grow stronger. I ask you, Lord God, that you would move us 
closer and closer together? Would we feel each other's pain more than we do? Would we care more about the lives of other people than we do ourselves? I ask you, when it comes to thinking about how do we spend our student grants, or how do we spend our salaries, or how do we spend that money we've got, Lord, rather than just thinking about things we want to accumulate, we think about people who are around us. Lord, I ask you, would you move us to be more generous than we've ever been before? I ask for that, Lord Jesus. Please help us. Help me to grow in it. Help us corporately to grow in it. I ask for that in Jesus' name. I pray for sacrificial giving of ourselves in a level we've never done before. I ask for that in your precious name. Amen. Second point, really quick. A great example of loving people. Yeah, a great example of loving people. We just see it in Barnabas' life. So Luke describes the church as a whole. He then picks Barnabas out as an individual. And he says, Barnabas, and he's going to appear loads in the book of Acts later on. He's going to be a mighty apostle seeing churches planted. Where does it start? It starts with Barnabas being sacrificial in his giving. Just being generous. Giving it out of what had given to him, he gave it away. He sold something of his inheritance He was based in Cyprus. He sold something that had been handed down from generation to generation to generation because he recognized he had an inheritance that he could send on ahead of him to heaven. He, He gave up something that was physical to get something that would be eternal. He thought the investment was worth it. He sold a piece of property so the needs of the poor then and there would be satisfied. Don't despise the day of small beginnings. He was nicknamed Barnabas, son of encouragement. He was an encourager. He was so good at building other people up, the apostles recognized it and said, we're going to change your name. We're going to give you a nickname because you're so good at it. I just want to say to each of you, whatever situation you're in, wherever you find yourself, don't, don't despise the day of small beginnings. Luke recorded... Barnabas' start. He was generous and he was an encourager. God went on to use him in mighty ways. If we're faithful with what God gives us, God gives us more. Jesus teaches that in the parables. And I just want to encourage you. Don't be disheartened if you just feel, I'm just doing small things. Be faithful with what God has given you and he will give you much more. We then move on to chapter 5. Remember, it's set in this incredible setting of generosity. And we get at the beginning of chapter 5 like this red warning light flashing in front of us and like a siren going off. You've seen those war films? The submarine comes under attack. The lighting in the submarine changes. The siren goes off. It all goes red. We're under attack. Something's happening. It's a bit like that's what's happening in these verses here. Luke wants to communicate. Although this is a time of great favor and blessing, not all is well. And I think it comes as a warning. I think we're enjoying the blessing of God at the moment as a church. But we don't take it for granted. In times of incredible blessing, there can still be sin in the camp. 
This is a difficult passage. What I want to do is just communicate very quickly what these verses say. I'm then going to make four or five points on the back of it. Firstly, the property that Ananias and Sapphira sold, they owned it. It was theirs. They chose to sell it, but they didn't have to. Just to put that out there from the very beginning, it says it all there. I'm sure you've picked that up, but it's important to say that. They both decided to only give part of the proceeds for the apostles to distribute. That was fine as well. There is no problem with that. And up until this point, them and Barnabas, no difference. It's when we get to verses 3 and 4 that we find the siren going off and the red light flashing. The Holy Spirit reveals to Peter that there is deceit connected with this gift. It seems that Ananias and Sapphira were deceiving both the apostles, the church, and the Holy Spirit. They were tempted by the devil, by Satan, and they gave in to that temptation. We don't know exactly what it was, but I'll touch on what I think it was as we work through the passage. Satan had tried to destroy the church in the previous chapter by persecution from the outside. Now he tries to destroy the church from the inside. This was a season of incredible blessing for the church. It was therefore also a very dangerous time too. It says in the passage that we read, why have you kept back? Why is it that you've contrived to keep back some of the money? That doesn't seem particularly strong, does it? But if you go to the original, um, the word steal would be a better word maybe in there, or even embezzle. So you could say, why have you decided to steal? Why have you decided to embezzle this money? On the back of Peter's words, Ananias died and was immediately buried. Medically, we don't know what happened, but we know he stopped breathing and he died. On the back of Peter's words, oh, I've done that bit. Three hours later, his wife comes in and Peter provides her with the opportunity to come clean. To tell the truth. She doesn't. And it seems to me, this is my take on what he says, it seems to me that Peter prophesies her demise and she dies. Let me make a few comments. I believe the issue here isn't about whether they gave money or even the fact that they kept some back. The issue here is deceit and hypocrisy. They wanted to gain credit for greater personal sacrifice than they actually made. It's something that they planned to do. They decided they were going to give the impression they were giving the whole lot. But in actual fact, they were only giving part of it. It seems to me that in this time of amazing favour and grace, God judges their sin. 
the reason they die is because they come under the judgment of God. It's not easy to explain, particularly for us, to understand how that could be right. But it was right. The church was in a time of incredible favour and blessing. And to do what they did was such hypocrisy and such deceit that was planned. And it was dangerous for the church as a whole. It's a bit like God planted this incredible garden. Absolutely amazing and beautiful. And right in the middle of it was this weed growing up that would have destroyed the garden. And so in his infinite wisdom and sovereignty, he decided to take it out. There are other instances in the New Testament where the church experienced the judgment of God. We find it in 1 Corinthians 5, 1 Corinthians 11, James chapter 5. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the church at Corinth was in a real state. They were taking the bread and wine in an atrocious way. And it says that some people have become sick and some have even died because of how they were taking the bread and wine And this was the judgment of God upon them. The church should not play act devotion to Jesus like the Pharisees. We should not play act devotion to Jesus like the Pharisees did. We shouldn't be more interested in the praise of men or other people in the church, rather than the praise of God. Faking faith in the presence of God is a fearful thing. You're either saying one of three things, and I'm going to finish quite briefly. You're either saying that God isn't here, therefore it doesn't matter how I live. Or you're saying that God is here, and he doesn't hear what I say or see what I do. Or you're saying God doesn't, isn't either, or you're saying God isn't here. So you're saying God is here. God does see what I do and what I say, but he's not going to bring any consequence to me for it. We don't know which Ananias and Sapphira thought, but they thought one of those three things. And it meant that they lived in a way where they thought there was no consequence to their action, They brought the blood of Jesus Christ into disrepute. In a sense, they made the sacrifice of Christ nothing. In our understanding of our loving, as God, as our loving Father, and He is, and it's hard, as I'm bringing this together, I know these are difficult things to bring together, but it hasn't changed. He's our loving Father. These incredibly intimate worship songs we've just had the privilege and the joy of singing. They are true. 
But as we experience God in that way, we mustn't lower him to our view of what a father is like. A bit soft, a bit daft, a bit of a cuddly granddad won't really bring any consequence to my actions. As I come to my loving father, he is the creator of the whole universe. As I come to my loving father, he is holy and no sin exists within him. As I come to my loving father, he's the one that orders world's event, world events, raises governments and brings them to nothing. As I come to my loving father, I come to the one who sent his only son to kill the sin that used to control my life that I might live in freedom and liberty. And it's not a freedom and liberty that allows me just to carry on living as I did before. It's a freedom and liberty so I can pursue God with purity. Church, if you are living in unrepentant sin, you know you're deliberately going against God and you do it time after time, with no desire to change. You've just settled for it. It's just how I am. It's what I'm doing. You're walking on thin ice. You're in a dangerous place. I'm not saying that God's going to kill you. He doesn't kill many people like that. Of course not. But his love and his discipline go together. When I discipline my boys, I do it because I love them. Because I love them, I discipline them. Your father will not leave you walking off to destroy yourself and other people. He will deal with you. Because that's part of being a good father. I don't know how he's going to do it, but he will. I want to plead with you that you make a decision to repent of those things that you know you are pursuing. You are running after, and it's as though Christ died for nothing. You need to turn away from those. Christ did not die to give you the freedom to carry on living as you were before. Christ died for you to give you the freedom to pursue him with abandonment, in holiness. My father is also a consuming fire. Don't fake it with God. Don't come along here smiling on the outside, raising your hands in worship when you know in your life it's just compromised two-way. Now, I know the danger of me preaching is this as well, is there are some of you that are desperately trying to get out of sin that you feel either you're addicted to or you're just battling to overcome. That's not Ananias and Sapphira. They were running headlong into destruction. And if I can say of all due respect, put two fingers up to God. It's not that. You come again seeking mercy and grace from him, you'll find it. Wash away all your sin. Cleanse your conscience. Remove your sins as far as the east is from the west. But if you're sat here thinking that you can mess with him, You're standing on thin ice. Please turn away from that. 
Why don't we stand? Lord Jesus, I want to thank you that you came to set us free from the sin of greed, hypocrisy, the love of possessions. You, you came to change us, to bring a radical transformation that we would be lovers of people, that we would care as much about the person sat next to us as we do about ourselves, that we'd care about their interests, that we'd pursue them, that we pursue you. Lord, I, I just want to firstly just pray very briefly for those that just their consciences, they're just undone with condemnation and guilt and so, trying so hard to get out of bad habits. I just pray right now they'd know your fatherly care and attention, the tenderness of your love warming their hearts. And I pray for fresh grace and power to be set free from whatever it is that binds them. I pray for those, my dear brothers and sisters, who really do think that they can just live anyway. And God's just soft or doesn't see. You don't, you don't see. I ask you for the conviction of the Holy Spirit to come upon them. And I pray they'd find a way straight back to you. I ask that in your precious name, Lord Jesus. Amen. If you want to talk to me or one of the other leaders about anything that's been said tonight, if you want to disagree with me, feel free to go and talk to Steve. Um, we're going to close it up there. If you are of the relentless age group, of which I'm very upset I missed by...